Thank you, Kylie. Very well read. It brings it to life, read well like that, doesn't it? And the story of Gideon. We're going to look at, uh, as I mentioned, three chapters this morning, chapter 6, 7 and 8. Well, many of you know I love my cricket. The season starts very soon. I'm looking forward to getting out there and playing again. But one of the things you need to play your game of cricket properly is you need the right clothes. Uh, It wasn't long ago uh, we turned up for a game of cricket and there I was without my whites to play. Now, the rules are pretty strict. If you don't have your white clothes, you can't play the game. So the rules go. But uh, we were a long way from home and so we decided to ask and plead with the umpire and plead with the other team whether or not we could play or I could play in just my regular civilian clothes and they allowed me to do it. Thankfully, we had an extra player on the field and thankfully I did particularly well that day and they were ruining the decision they made. If you're going to play cricket, you need your gear. If you're going to go skiing, you need your skis. If you're going to play music, you need your musical instrument. These things are not hard for us to understand. God's people need God. Again, this should not seem hard for us to understand. But if you're like me, in our lives, we forget to pack God into our daily lives as well. We leave him out. We put him aside. This was the story of the Israelite people in the time of Judges, and it can be part of our lives as well. Forgetting to, to, to pack God into our lives can bring all sorts of problems, as we'll see throughout this part of the Bible this morning. Thankfully, the story of the book of Judges is a gracious story of salvation from God, so that when God's people leave God out of the picture, God graciously inserts himself back into the picture and brings his grace and mercy to his people. We're going to see that again this morning in the example of Gideon. You might know the story of Gideon well, or perhaps not so well. You might only know the part that Kylie just finished reading for us with the fleece being thrown out and think to yourself, that's a good way of making decisions. We'll see this morning, perhaps not so good. You may know Gideon and uh, Gideon's name alone as being the the representative of the Bibles you find in hotels and, uh, uh, and, and in different places like that that have been placed there. Why it's called Gideon's, I'm, well, I am sure, but uh, it doesn't really fit the description. Because Gideon, the man, is a mixed bag. Yes, he trusts God. Yes, In the Bible, he is lauded for his faith, but as we'll see in this passage this morning, his faith is all over the place. And that's an encouragement to us. For though Gideon's faith is all over the place, God accepts him, raises him up, and allows him to be his servant. And he does the same for us. We can be the servants of God, even in our mixed-upness that we have. So we're going to have a look at three chapters of this guy's life, Gideon. So I need your Bible to be there with you uh, so that we can look particularly at chapters 7 and 8 a little later on. But I'm going to pray and then we'll dive aboard and don't forget the question time afterwards as well. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, be with us this morning. Please allow us to put all the other distractions of life aside so that we can deal with what you are telling us in your word and what you'd like us uh, to go from here, uh, being able not only to see but to change in our lives so that we might be Uh, the the people of God that you would have us be. Heavenly Father, be with me this morning. Help me to speak in a way that's clear and makes sense, that's interesting to listen to, and for us all to have uh, uh, hearts ready to receive your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, what is it that you're reluctant to do? Maybe you're reluctant to uh, do those jobs around home that nobody wants to do, you know, cleaning the toilet. You're reluctant to do that. Or, or maybe you've got family members that are reluctant to eat their vegetables. What is it that you're reluctant to do? Are you reluctant sometimes to follow God and do what he says? My answer is yes. I am often reluctant to do what God says. I'd love to be keen, but I'm often reluctant. In chapter 6 of the book of Judges, we find a reluctant leader. Judges chapter 6, and particularly verses 1 to 10, introduce us once again to the cycle of the book of Judges. You see it on your screen here. Uh, The people sin, God is angered, and delivers them over to their enemies. And the people cry out to God, and he raises up a judge. And uh, after that judge does his work, there is a time of peace. And we find out in verses 1 to 10 that God is angered at the sin of the people and sells them into the hands of the Midianites for a period of seven years. And verses 1 to 10 tell us the extent of the oppression that comes from the Midianite people. And it's strong and it's harsh and it causes the people to cry out to God once again. And we find in verse 11 that God raises up a leader. A leader in an unusual spot. Look at verse 11 of chapter 6. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Not the place that you'd expect a leader to be found, but here he is, Gideon, beating out wheat, and we find throughout the rest of this chapter that he is a reluctant leader, a reluctant judge, a reluctant saviour of God's people. But before we see his reluctance, let's first look at what it is that God would ask him to do. Well, like many others in the book of Judges, he was asked to be raised up by God to be a judge, to take on the Midianite people and to achieve victory. Look at verse 16 of this chapter. The Lord said to him, I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. He's going to take on the Midianites and he's going to win. And it's going to all begin with step one of the process. He's going to go and tear down the altars of Baal and the towers of the Asherahs, these idols in the land that had popped up. God said that they would when they did not drive the people out of the land. And it was going to be Gideon's job to go and remove those idols and take on the Midianites. And he was going to win because God would be with him. Now that ought to be enough. But it's not. Gideon is a reluctant leader. And there's at least five ways, possibly six ways, in which he is reluctant in this chapter. Let's look at each one of them and reflect on them together. Look at verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valour. Verse 13. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, 
did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Here's his first excuse. He says, me be a servant of God? Really? Where is God anyway? Life's so bad he couldn't possibly be with us. Where is he? Now you might have noticed that Gideon changes the tune. He is asked to be the man of valour and he's asking what happens to the nation, not to himself, but to the nation. And he says, where is God? I don't see him at work anymore. That's all past stuff. I don't see him at work anymore. I, I can't possibly serve him. I wonder if you feel the same way at times. Whether you think to yourself, I can't see God at work in my life, so I'm not going to serve him. Or you might say to yourself, I know what my life is like. I follow Jesus, but I still have these mental health issues. I follow Jesus, but I can't get a job. I follow Jesus and love him, but I can't get a spouse that wants to be with me that loves Jesus as well. And we say, God can't possibly be present because these horrible things are part of my life. God must be absent. God mustn't care. God mustn't be at work in my life. And so we say, I won't follow him. I won't serve him. But before we go down that road, we need to remember this. The cross of Jesus is a time in history where God seems to be absent. God seems to be out of the picture. Indeed, the words from Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, seem to point us in this direction. But when God seems to be absent, this does not mean he is not at work. You and I need to remember when we are reluctant to follow the Lord because of this reason, because we do not see him at work, this does not mean that he has left us. Secondly, he finds another excuse in verse 15. He said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He's digging into his bag of excuses, isn't he? One by one. And this time he says, Well, I can't be your saviour, I can't be your leader, God, because I am the, I'm from the weakest clan. And I'm the lowest in that weakest clan. Now that may be factually true. But Gideon himself is forgetting what God said to him through the angel in verse 12. The Lord is with you. See, if Gideon is weak, that's perfectly fine. Because it's the strength of God that counts, not the weakness of the person. And we might think to ourselves at times when we're called upon to serve God in various ways that we say, I'm not good enough to do X, Y, Z. I'm not moral enough. I'm not biblically trained enough. I'm not Christian enough, whatever that means. But we need to understand that it's in the weakness of our flesh that God is seen to be strong. That we are not good enough, not moral enough, not Christian enough, not biblically trained enough are, are merely excuses for not serving God as we ought. So this excuse falls over as well in the hands of Gideon. Thirdly, he's still not sure. God has told him he will be with him. 
but he needs a sign. Now, this is never a positive thing in the Bible. Uh, We find throughout the book of Judges that just because these things are there, uh, just because they're written in the Bible, does not mean that they are to be examples for us in our own lives. That Gideon needs a sign is not something we should go home and test out. Indeed, when Jesus is called upon to provide a sign for who he is, this is seen to be a sign of unbelief in the nation around him. We're not to emulate Gideon. But nonetheless, God accedes to his request. He takes food in his own home and he comes out and brings it before the angel of the Lord, verse 21. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Imagine that. You bring the food out. There's a lot of food there. There's a young goat prepared and a whole bunch of unleavened cakes. You bring it out and it just spontaneously goes up in fire. And the person that was there with you is gone. So verse 22, I think you're supposed to laugh at this. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. Oh, I got it now. I understand. Gideon tests the Lord here. This is not something we are intended to do. We're not to emulate Gideon in his testing of the Lord, but here we see once again his reluctance. I'll only do it if you accede to my request, God. And in God's gracious kindness, he does so. So finally, Gideon is now ready to go out and tear down the idols of Baal and Asherah. Well, almost, at least. He gets ready to do it. He receives the instructions. But notice what he does in verse 27. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did it as the Lord had told him. That's good. But... Because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. I wonder if you've ever been in that situation. Fear. Fear of serving God because of the consequences that may come about. We all find ourselves in this uh, situation from time to time where we're fearful of stepping out as a servant of Christ in the world around us. Yes, we're, we're happy to be involved of a Sunday with God's people and to play our part in the activities of the church, but when it comes to raising that in our workplace or our schools or universities or even in our family, we're reluctant to do so for fear of what might come about. But we're reminded, aren't we, of what Romans chapter 1 says, Do not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to the salvation of many. Gideon goes by night because he's afraid. And while he does trust God and he does do as the Lord has told him, he does it with fear in the back of his mind. And so overnight he goes and pulls down these these, uh, idols, the altar of Baal and the towers of Asherah. And the next morning they find out that these things have been torn down and they work out anyway that it was Gideon. And so they ready themselves for a battle. But before the battle takes place in chapter 7 that we'll see in just a moment, Gideon just wants one last word of surety. Just one more thing, God. Could you just prove to me one last time that you're actually with me? And 
that's the story of the fleece in verses 36 to 40. This is the fifth way, or perhaps the fifth and sixth way, that Gideon is reluctant to be a leader. God, prove to me that I am actually your leader and you are actually with me. I'm going to put out a fleece and overnight I want to make sure that there's dew on the fleece and nothing on the ground. Again, he goes to test God. This is not a decision-making process we should enter into. But God in his graciousness, with his leader that he's raised up, is happy to accede to his request. God does what he says. Puts dew on the fleece and not on the ground. And Gideon says, that's great, Lord. Can I just do it one more time, please? Just, just one more time. This time, do it in reverse. Not on, no dew on the fleece and dew on all of the ground. And only then will I be ready to serve you. And again, God accedes to his request. On five or perhaps six separate occasions, in one chapter, we see a reluctant leader. As I mentioned earlier, we're not to emulate Gideon. He's not the, the guy that we are to emulate in being reluctant. We're not to put out our fleeces in order to make our decisions. But what makes him so reluctant? After all, he was told right back in verse 12 that the Lord would be with him. Why is he reluctant when he receives such a strong word from God? Well, he's like that because we are like that too. We are told, aren't we, on numerous occasions in the New Testament that God is with us. Jesus says to his disciples, I will be with you to the very end of the age. Jesus says in John 14 to 17 on numerous occasions that he will send the Holy Spirit to be with us and in us. And yet from time to time we ask God to prove that his presence is true. Or we say, God, I'm not good enough to serve you. Or we say, really, God, I I just need a test or, or a sign that you're actually at work. Or I'll serve you, but only under the cover of darkness, as it were, and not in my public life. This is what Gideon was like, and this is what we are so often like. God says he is with us, but we are reluctant people as well. And yet here's the good news. The good news is that Gideon still did what the Lord told him. We see back in chapter 6, verse 27, he did as the Lord told him. Yes, it was in fear. Yes, it was under the cover of darkness. But he still did what God told him to do. He trusted God with a weak, reluctant faith. And it's this faith that lands him in the hall of faith in the New Testament In Hebrews 11, we saw this last week, but let's look at it again in Hebrews chapter 11. What more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. You might say, how does Gideon end up in the hall of faith with such a ridiculous, reluctant faith like this? Well, the reason is because faith is not about the strength of your faith, but who your faith is in. We talked about this last week. Sure, it is undesirable to have a weak faith. Yes, we should work on our faith being stronger all the time. However, 
We will not be judged by the strength of our faith, but on who our faith is in. This is the good news of the gospel of Christ. You and I are saved by faith in the Lord Jesus, and it's not about the strength of our faith, but the strength of the one who holds on to us. So what should we emulate from Gideon? Well, not his reluctance. We should seek to push that reluctance aside and follow God strongly, but know this, we should emulate his faith, even his weak faith. Which brings us to chapter 7. A weak people with a strong God. We see this in practice in chapter 7. After pulling down the idols of uh, of Baal and Asherah, the Midianites and the nations around get ready for battle. And the Lord says to Gideon, I know you've got 32,000 men with you ready to fight, but that's too many. Too many. Look at why that's the case in verse 2 of chapter 7. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. 32,000 men is too many. Because Israel might end up saying to themselves, we did this, look at how good we are. We're fantastic. They flex their muscle. And they think it was all about them. And so God says, I need you to whittle down the numbers, Gideon. And so 32,000 soldiers becomes 10,000 soldiers, we're told. Anyone who is fearful in any way is able to go home freely. And so 22,000 go home and 10,000 remain. But that's still too many for the Lord. And so Gideon is told to take the men down to walk down to the water. And depending on how they drink the water, they are to be put into two different groups. As a result, there are only 300 men left after they had, uh, after they had taken the drink. This was the army that God was going to use to overtake the Midianites. Look at verse 7 of chapter 7. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped the water... I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go, every man, to his own home. I wonder how you would feel in those circumstances. How would you feel if you knew that you had 32,000 men in a battle and now you've only got 300 and you're supposed to be in charge? How would you feel? Well, you've already been told that God will be with you on numerous occasions You've already been told that God would give you the victory. And yet, Gideon is still afraid. He's still afraid. And God, in his graciousness, comes to Gideon in his fear. Look at verse 10 of the same chapter. If you are afraid, go down to the camp where the Midianites are, with Purah your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, the servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. If you're afraid, go down to the camp. Gideon says, yep, I'm afraid I'm going straight down to the camp. Gideon was afraid once again as the the army was whittled down from 32,000 to 300. But God in his kindness allows him to go down to the camp. And when he goes down to the camp, he overhears a conversation that's taking place between two Midianite soldiers of a dream. A dream that he'd had that said, 
that God would win the battle through Gideon. And look at verse 15 of chapter 7 about how this does strengthen Gideon's hand. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Gideon then goes into the battle and he takes the battle and the Lord gives him the victory. Verse 22. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. Gideon goes into battle with his 300 men, but we're told very clearly that it's the Lord who wins the battle. God wanted to make sure that there could be no distinction. He would win the battle. By rights, Gideon and 300 men should never win this battle. But in the weakness of the nation of Israel, God wins the battle against Midian. Weak people, strong God. Now, if we look throughout the Bible, we find this to be the case over and over again, don't we? We find that there are weak servants of God throughout the Bible, but a strong God in front and behind them. Think of Paul's thorn in the flesh through which he served God. Think of Moses who says, I can't speak for you, God. God provides for him. Think of Peter, who is not an educated man and leads the church into its first generation after Jesus is resurrected from the dead. See, the Bible's story is this. God does his best work with weak, empty, humble people. Why? Well, as verse 2 says, lest we say, or the Israelites say, my hand, my own hand has saved me. It's interesting, isn't it? Just how much we hate our own weakness. It's true to say, and I understand this because I'm the same, we hate showing our weakness to others, don't we? I couldn't possibly cry in front of others. I couldn't possibly admit my need in front of others. I couldn't possibly say that I need your help. I'm dependent on you in some way, shape or form. No, what we, what we love in our own society is for us to be strong enough, good enough, everything together, get it in order. And this way that we act in, this, in our world can bleed over into our relationship with God. We suddenly find ourselves in a position where we don't need to depend on God. When we don't come to God with a need, when we, in our weakness, say this is not the time to depend on God. But we need to understand how God does things in his world. Weakness is a gift from God so that he might do his wondrous work in the midst of our weakness. Do not be duped into thinking that weakness is bad. Our weakness is the perfect place for God to do his work. Lest we say, It's all about our work and what we have done. Which brings us to chapter 8. Because this is the problem. In chapter 8, the problem is Gideon gets too successful. After having won the battle against the Midianites back in chapter 7, Gideon changes. He becomes cranky. His success goes to his head. 
in verses 1 to 3, after the battle of Midian, he has a run-in with the tribe of Ephraim. And they basically say to Gideon, why didn't you include us in the battle? We're really strong. We could have done a great job for you. Why didn't you use us? We could have taken them on. Now, Gideon is wise and shrewd in this particular case. He's not cranky towards the Ephraimites because he knows they're big and strong and could deal with him very quickly. But this same sort of shrewdness is not there when he comes across these next two cities of Succoth and Penuel. Look at verse 4 of chapter 8. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give us loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zebah and Zalmanah, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zebah and Zalmanah already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zebah and Zalmanah into my hand, I will flail your flesh with thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Here is cranky Gideon. He's been chasing these two kings for a long period of time. He's been chasing them with his exhausted 300 men. And he comes into these two towns and asks for bread. And most of us would say, well, why wouldn't you just give Gideon some bread? What's so bad about that? These are God's people as well. Why not give them bread? Well, the reason is they see Gideon for what he really is. See, verses 18 to 21 of this passage of chapter 8 show us that this is not a mission from God. Look at verse 18 of chapter 8. When he finally catches up with Zebra and Zalmanah, Gideon said to Zeba and Zalmanah, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And Gideon said, They were my brothers, the son of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jetha, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Zebar and Zalmanah said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zebar and Zalmanah, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. This was not a mission from God. This was a mission of Gideon. It was a mission of revenge. A mission of his own reputation, a mission of his own autonomy, a mission of his own glory, a mission where he was inserting himself as the king. The success that he had in chapter 7 had led him to think that he was a ruler and a king, not a servant of God. And the people see it that way themselves. Look at verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us. You and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Now it seems as though Gideon has a moment of clarity in verse 23. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now why does he say this? Well, it's not immediately clear. But it seems as though he didn't believe it. 
He might have said the right theological thing, but he didn't believe it. How do we know this? Well, we know from verses 29 to 31 that Gideon had a number of children, but it's his last child, Abimelech, that is of particular interest. Verse 31 tells us that Abimelech was the son of his concubine. Now, for us, the name Abimelech doesn't mean anything, but the name Abimelech means this, my father is king. Dad called his son, my father is king. Gideon was seeing himself as the king. This success of chapter 7 has gone to his head. He thought it was all about his success and his agenda and his revenge. But this is where the problems lie for Gideon. See, what does this mean for us? Well, we ourselves must be careful in the case of revenge. Revenge, as we're told in the scriptures, is always a terrible motivation for anything. Romans chapter 12 verse 19 reminds us of this when it says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Revenge is a terrible motivator. Secondly, Gideon was on about his own agenda, not God's agenda. Chapter 8 does not show God's mission, but his own mission. You might notice throughout chapter 8, there is an absence of God language right throughout the chapter. God does not give the victory to Gideon. Gideon takes the victory as his own. This is very different to what we see in chapter 7 and with the other judges. What do we learn from this? Well, we need to remember that we are likewise not kings in our own life or in the world around us. We are merely servants of God called upon not to run our own agenda, but to run God's agenda in this world. And thirdly, in this passage, we see the danger of success. One of the worst things that can happen to a Christian person is that they be successful. Seems a strange thing to say, doesn't it? But success leads us to think that we have done it ourselves rather than God doing it for us. Understand this. If you in your own mind see your career as something wonderful, that has come from God. If in your own eyes you see your family as a success story, that has come from God. If you look at your own bank balance and situation in life like that and see that it's in a good place, that has come from God. See, in our world, success means we've done a good job. But theologically, success means God has been generous and gracious to us. God gives all good gifts. And it's important for us that we, like Gideon, don't believe our own hype. Gideon had become addicted to success and had forgotten God in the meantime. This is especially important if you're serving in Christian ministry in any way. Christian ministry is about serving God and success in that looks a whole lot different from success in the world around us see Gideon was addicted to his own success and it brought about his own downfall in the end so what are we to make of the person of Gideon in chapters 6 to 8 of Judges well we we see him as a mixed character a mixed character of weak faith used by God but not someone we should necessarily emulate. 
Gideon is a mixed person. Like we are mixed people. And God could still use him, which is an encouragement to us. But as we look at Gideon, we look to a saviour who was reluctant. Instead, we turn ourselves to Jesus, the perfect saviour. The perfect one. Who, while we were reluctant to follow God, while we were still sinners, he was sent to die for us. To be put on that cross so that we might live and live with peace not just now but forever see we started by talking about forgetting those items that we need the most Gideon had lost sight of the fact that he needed God and when we find ourselves in a place where we forget God in our lives we are courting disaster like Gideon himself did but faith is not how well we do that but that we put God in our daily lives and Take him with us, as it were, so that we might not court trouble, but have that faith in the Lord Jesus that pleases God. Before we pray, I'm going to give you the chance to ask a question or two. There's a lot there in those three chapters. Uh, And uh, next week, we're going to look at his son, Abimelech, in chapter 9. And uh, that's, well, that's an even worse story. Let's take uh, a couple of moments to ask a question or two, and then we'll come back and answer some of those in just a minute. Okay, thank you for your questions. Um, Thanks for asking. There was also, just uh, while we're on this topic, there was a question last week that came in after I sat down about men and women, and it was from Anonymous, so I didn't get to answer it. So if it was yours, there was a bit of a... I'm not sure if I read the tone rightly or wrongly, but it seemed a bit uh, uh, that it was keen to have a conversation. So if that was you, come and have a conversation with me later. And if you can put your name to it, that helps just if we don't get to them at all. But Bob has asked the first one, was it an angel or God himself? So this is talking about chapter 6, does it matter? Um, This happens a lot in the Old Testament, great question Bob. In chapter 6 we see that there's this interchange of, it's the angel talking, then it's the Lord talking, then it's the angel talking and it's the Lord talking and it's very very strange. So verse 11 of chapter 6, now the angel of the Lord came and sat uh, and the angel of the Lord, verse 12, appeared to him uh, and said, the Lord is with you. Uh, and then in verse 14, and the Lord turned to him and said, um, so there's this, it goes in and out and interchange. Uh, and this happens a lot in the Old Testament. There's lots of ink spilled about why this is the case. And really, uh, who knows is the answer. But 
clearly it is the Lord's word, one way or the other, that is being delivered to, to Gideon. And so at that level, it doesn't matter because it's still God's word, one way or the other, as to whether it's his messenger or him, it's still him that, uh, uh, that is speaking. So that's a great question um, and a tricky one to, to work out. Chapter 8, verse 34, the next one says, suggests that Israel keenly followed a leader, not God himself. How can we follow this? Uh, how can we avoid this temptation today? Yes, chapter 8, verse 34, and the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from their, the hand of all their enemies on every side. Um, this is one of the things I left out of this talk just because of the length of things. But um, we are uh, uh, in danger ourselves, aren't we, always, of idolising leaders uh, in various ways, but particularly in the church of God. Um, and we need to be careful that the leaders that we have are not pointing, them, uh, pointing people to themselves, but to Jesus. That's always got to be the key. Uh, and a leader of any kind needs to make that the case. Uh, and so that's always a danger. Uh, we can see that all around the world, can't we, with these big celebrity Christian leaders? I mean, that, that, that oxymoron there, that shouldn't be together, really, um, and that's a problem for us. It's always a danger and a temptation for us all. Uh, uh, how can we avoid this temptation? Well, the, the, the answer to that is to keep pointing to Jesus. The leaders need to do it, and we need to make sure that the leaders do it. Um, so it's a, it goes around in a circle that way as well. Uh, so why did the Gideons choose to name themselves after Gideon? Um, I, I promised that I wouldn't actually share this, but now that you've asked it, I, I will. Um, the Gideons, uh, I, I think the Gideons, the Bible Gideon people are fantastic uh, and wonderful, and I think you should support them if you can. Okay? I preface that with, with what I say here. The, the reason the Gideons were called uh, the Gideons is because of this. Uh, this is on their website. Gideon was a man... I was expecting this question that's why I've already got it up on my phone Gideon was a man who was willing to do exactly what God wanted him to do regardless of his own judgment as to the plans or results um, that's 100% wrong <laughs> um, so it's just become a name of an organization don't tie it to what they're doing but he didn't do exactly what God wanted him to do he wanted to get out of it six separate times and uh, so he's, he, he's run away from God he's more like Jonah than he is like a faithful person um, which is uh, the reason I didn't want to share that initially is I don't want you to get no confidence in the Gideon organisation. They do a great thing, okay? So um, if you can separate the two. Last one uh, is the same question that Bob asked Trish in about the angel and the Lord. Thank you very much. That's awesome. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, please, that you would help us uh, to be strengthened in our faith, to listen to your word and take you at your word. And we thank you that when we mess this up and things go awry that you are always ready to insert yourself into the picture of our lives and to pull us out of that muck and mire and to stand us on our feet once again. And we thank you for this. And we thank you that we're not judged by you on the strength of our faith, but the strength of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, who has won victory for us. And so we ask, please, that we would not be content with a reluctant, scared, uh, afraid faith, but nevertheless we would be reminded of your grace when we find ourselves in these times. We ask, please, Lord, that you'd help us not to get too far ahead of ourselves when we find success in our own lives, but that instead you would help us to be reminded that every good and perfect gift comes from you, even the successes we have in life. Heavenly Father, we ask, please, that you'd help us to learn from the example of Gideon, both positively and especially negatively, uh, that we might walk in strong faith, stronger every day, in the strong Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.